truth and we thank you for that. Pray, Father, that um, as, we, as we search your word this evening, that you would speak to us. That as you speak to us, that we would listen. As we listen, that we would hear. As we hear that you would change us. And you change, as you change us, we would live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a question as a start, who are you? Lots of ways you can answer it. Let me put it another way. Who would other people say that you are? The answer to those two questions is not always the same, is it? So most of you know me as a fairly cynical, but pleasant bloke. Yeah, fairly nice. Uh, my neighbours underneath me don't know me like that in my previous block of units. I have a basement underneath me if anybody lives in that. That wouldn't be good. Um, but in my previous home, I had, I had a, a set of uh, Colombian students that lived underneath me who um, liked to smoke stuff, some of it legal, some of it not, um, and who liked to party at all odd hours of the morning, every morning. I used to get the police called on them quite a lot, not by me in my defense. I never called the police on them once, but other people did. Um, I, uh, I dealt with it in a rather unique way. I sat there and thought about it and went, well, every time their friends leave, they let me know. It's polite, right? Goodbye, see ya, cheers. So in the morning when I went down to work, I would go downstairs, and as I passed their flat, I would knock on the door and say good morning to them and let them know that I was now going. They didn't like me very much. You might know me like, like the guys I work with know me somewhat in the middle. I can be really grumpy in the office. Sometimes it's because I'm having a bad day. Sometimes it's because... Well, sometimes it's their fault. <laughs> Not all the time, sometimes. So you might know me in any one of those extremes, kind of like really annoyed Tom, really nice Tom, in between Tom. Which of those is right? All of them, probably. John 7 talks about who Jesus is, and it talks about, about who we are as well. And here's the thing with it, when it talks about who Jesus is and talks about who we are, it's the exact opposite of what I've just told you about me. There is no in-between when it comes to Jesus or us in John 7. There's really only one right answer. It's totally unambiguous. So this section of the story of Jesus takes place about six months before Jesus dies. Okay, against this backdrop... Um, and you might remember it if you think back a couple of weeks, Mark dealt with it, um, Jesus' time. Do you guys remember Mark talking about Jesus' time? Jesus consistently in the early parts of, of John's gospel tells his disciples, well, I'm not going to do that because my time has not come. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem because my time has not come. His time is, is or, or the hour that he's talking about when he talks about that, is the time of his glorification which is, death, is his death on the cross and his resurrection again. So, so it's six months before that. 
It takes place in something called the, ten, the Festival of the Tabernacles or the Festival of the Booths. Happened in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. So in our calendar, that would be sometime September, October every year. And it was one of the big three Jewish festivals. So they would do the Passover, they would do Pentecost, and they'd do the Feast of the Tabernacles. Those were the three festivals where they would actually go away from home, um, though some people did stay at home, and go to Jerusalem and celebrate in Jerusalem. Now, the Festival of the Tabernacles was, was kind of, if you can picture this, a mixture of a celebration about the Exodus. You guys know about the Exodus. God rescues Israel from Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. They cry out to him, and they say, God, um, we're in slavery here. We're miserable. We want you to take us. We want you to take us out. And God says, I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give you, a land that turns out to be Israel. And so he does these miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and, and leads Israel out. Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, but, but God compels him. It, it just Every time Pharaoh says, no, God, just give, put something worse in place and, and something worse. And eventually Pharaoh goes, okay, you can go. And then he changes his mind and God destroys the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And the Israelites cross over the Red Sea and they end up in, in the Sinai Desert where they promptly look at it and go, you brought us out here to die. We were so happy in Egypt why couldn't you, if, if you wanted us to die, why didn't you just leave us there? But God provides for them, even though they moan and complain every step of the way. He provides water for them when they need water. He provides manna and quail for them when, they, when they're hungry. And he leads them out, and he leads them across the Sinai Desert, and he leads them to the River Jordan. Across the River Jordan, they see this wonderful country, and they send some spies across at God's, at God's orders to go into, the, into, into the, the promised land. And the spies come back and they say, we've got good news for you, we've got bad news for you. And, and here's the good news. They show them all the fruit that they brought, all the food that they brought out. Such an abundant land. It's the kind, the kind of country you spit in the ground and stuff grows. It's fantastic. There's cities everywhere. It's wonderful. We won't have to do anything. We won't have to build anything. And everybody's really excited, and they say, here's the bad news. The people that are there, well, there are lots of them. And they're huge, they're giants. And everybody that was so excited about the produce and, and everything like that suddenly look at the ground and, and shake their heads and go, we're not going in. And they decide not to go across into the promised land. And so God has them wandering around the desert for 40 years. Eventually that generation dies out. New generation goes across into the promised land. And this festival's instituted, the festival of the booths to remind them of that. To remind them that for 40 years, they walked around in the desert. They didn't have a permanent place. They built, they built shacks. Every time they moved, they disassembled shacks and they built them in their new homes. And they moved around and for 40 years they did that. And then that then after that, God gave them this wonderful, fantastic land to be in. So it was, it was a remembrance of that, but it was also a harvest festival, sort of like Thanksgiving, I suppose. So what they would do, and what Jewish people do to this day, is once a year, for seven days or so, they would go and build themselves 
a shack in the garden or in the walls outside outside the walls of Jerusalem. And they would stay in it for seven days. Now, there weren't many rules around it. You could build it out of anything you wanted to. You could stick it against the wall of your house. You could build it in your veranda. Apparently, you could even build it on top of your house if you had a flat roof. The only rule was it had to have a natural roof on it. And then all the blokes in the family would sleep in there for seven days. The girls didn't have to. But only if it didn't rain. If it rained, even the blokes could go inside. And every day, everybody comes out and sits in the shack and eats in the shack. They do this every single year to remind themselves of what they had and how God has blessed them with this wonderful, fantastic land. A land that they had more food than they could eat. A land overflowing with milk and honey. So that's a festival that Jesus walks into when all this happens. So who is Jesus? Well, as we wind our way through the story, we see a couple of different answers to who Jesus is. But in the end, only one of them has, has truth to it. So if you look at verse 1, look at verse 1 up there at the top. Sorry, I'm not Mark. I don't stick it up myself. Verse 1, what did the Jewish leaders think of Jesus? Not very much, right? They wanted to kill him. Now, what you need to realize about about Jewish law is there's literally a list that long. Just that long, despite what people think about the Bible, in Jewish law, of things that can get you killed. It's not a long list, right? It's there. There's some things that God treats as serious. Why did they want to kill Jesus? Well, verse 23, Jesus identifies the source of the problem with him. See, at the beginning of chapter 5, we read about a healing that Jesus does. There's this guy that's paralyzed, been paralyzed since birth. Jesus walks up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And he, what would you do? Yeah, I want to be healed. Um, Jesus goes, okay, pick up your mat and walk home. And the guy gets up, paralyzed since birth rolls up his mat, sticks it under his arm, and walks home. Now, this happens on the Sabbath, on, on the seventh day, the day of rest. So it happens that, that working on the day of rest was one of the few things that, that carried the capital sentence in Israel. So the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and what he did. They looked straight past the fact that there was this guy that was paralyzed for years and years and years, paralyzed his whole life, who couldn't walk. And Jesus came along and said, dig up your mat and go, and he could walk. They look straight past that, and they go, you healed him on the Sabbath. How could you heal him on the Sabbath? It's the Sabbath, man. Now, as you're listening to this, you might be tempted to think, what a bunch of self-righteous idiots. I mean, that's the impression you get of them when you read the Gospels. But here's the reality. We know from extra-biblical sources, we know from other places in the Bible, that they were actually pretty keen on honoring God, the religious leaders. I mean, that was their job. Their job was to to take the law of God in the Bible and apply that to the people, the people that they led, that they ruled. They were fairly caring. They were fairly keen to see that, that the people of Israel followed God and honored him. In the main, 
people looked at them and thought, these guys are moral and upright. So why did they look at Jesus and, and go, you deserve death? Well, I think it's because they couldn't see past what was obvious to them. Their paradigm was that Jesus couldn't be anything other than a mortal man. So if he was doing something on the Sabbath that he shouldn't do on the Sabbath, he was clearly sinning. He was clearly evil. What they did intellectually with the fact that this man could walk and couldn't walk before, I don't know. But there you are. Now, the exception to this, if you look at the end of of John 7, is Nicodemus. Remember that bit about Nicodemus? It's not the first time we've met Nicodemus. You meet Nicodemus back in in chapter 3, I think it is, in John chapter 3. He asked Jesus what he's talking to Jesus. I forget exactly what his question was, but Jesus tells him, what you need to do if you want to follow me is be born again. And he has this whole long discussion with Jesus, and there's no conclusion. We're not, we're not told what he walked away believing. And kind of if we look at the back end of chapter 7, we don't get that either from him. What does he believe? Who knows? But certainly in the midst of this, this bear pit where, where everybody's gunning for Jesus, all the religious rulers are gunning for Jesus, he does have the guts to stand up and go, wait, guys, how can we condemn him? if we haven't listened to him first. Good, yeah. Would have been better if he had come out and supported him wholeheartedly, I think. Okay, so that's the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 3, Jesus' brothers. Yeah, the Catholics are wrong on this one. Mary didn't stay a virgin. Joseph, Mary, lots of kids. Bunches of kids. Yeah? So Jesus has these brothers. Have a look at verses 3 to 5. We'll read them together. I'll read them. You can follow. Be weird if you read them with me, I think. Just got to find it. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, that your disciples there may see the works you do too. No one wants, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe him. So his brothers looked at him and went, well, look, (laughs) uppity elder brother, if you want to be famous, do it right. Be famous. Go to Judea. Do your miracles in front of the people in Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea. And and do your miracles there and get the recognition and power that, that you want. In Mark 3, we see a slightly less charitable version of that. You know the one? Family walk up to him, look at him, say, dude, you're mad. Come home. You're crazy. You're embarrassing us. Go home. So did his family see him as anything special? No. They didn't believe in him. Pharisees, his family, well, sorry, religious leaders, his family, there were Pharisees and Sadducees probably there. What about the common people, the everyday Israelite? See a variety of views about Jesus there. Look, look at verse 12. There they talk about him being a good man. 
Some of them talk about him being a liar. Verse 20. Simon looked at Jesus and said, he's possessed by a demon. Some of them, however, described him as the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was, I mean, it's just a word to us, right? We use it all the time. For, for Jewish people, it's a very special word. The Messiah is this figure that's going to come. They still believe he's going to come. This figure that's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to rule on David's throne. King David was the greatest king that Israel had ever known. And under David and Solomon, that was when, when the Jewish nation was at its peak. And the promise was that, that this king was going to come who was going to be like, like King David. This great king who's he's going to rule in an even better way than King David did. And, and the kingdom was going to be greater than it was. And people would come to it and worship God. People that weren't Jewish would come to it and worship God. If we can put it in modern terms, the Messiah was kind of like Che Guevara was to the communists, this figure of hope. Or, or Nelson Mandela was to, to us South Africans, this, this wonderful figure that was going to save us and make everything right. So when they looked at the Messiah, when they looked at him, all they saw was hope and promise. As they looked at Jesus, some of them looked at him and said, well, our freedom is at hand. The religious leaders would have profoundly disagreed with that synopsis of Jesus. They would have looked at Jesus and went, Messiah, are you mad? <laughs> Must be crazy. Micah 5 verse 2 talks about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem. So, so they looked at Jesus and went, we know Jesus. We know where Jesus is from. Jesus is from Galilee. How can he be the Messiah? The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Can't be the Messiah. Except Jesus did come from Bethlehem. You remember correctly, he was born there. He, he, he and his family scarped off to Israel, uh, to Egypt, when there was persecution, when they were wiping out all the baby boys, because... King Herod was scared of, of the new king that was coming. And then when, when that king died, they came back, and they moved back to Galilee where, where Joseph and Mary had come from. So that one didn't work out. The, the religious leaders even... Here's a, here's a, bit of, um, a bit of parochialism for you. You know like how rude we are in New South Wales about the Taswegians? Yeah? This is a bit like that, only... Worse, they didn't think very highly of Galileans in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. It was like seen as the cultural backwater, the everything backwater. So, so the, uh, at the end of, at the end of uh, chapter 7, when, when the guys are talking, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. Remember the insult they threw at Nicodemus? said to him, they're talking about Jesus being the prophet Elijah. He says, well, they said to him, well, well, he's from Galilee. We know he's from Galilee, and no prophet can ever come from Galilee. If you go and look it up, you'll see that no prophet can ever come from Galilee. Another reason, if you look at verse 27, 
that Jesus, uh, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah in the common people's view was, was because the Messiah they believed would just suddenly appear and lead Israel. So, so they had known Jesus. They had seen Jesus. Jesus didn't just suddenly appear. He had a track record. He had a traceability. So they looked at him and said, well, he can't be the Messiah. And yet through all of that, they did recognize that Jesus was somebody special. Taught as nobody else ever had. They knew Jesus. They knew he was a carpenter. What they would have described as a man of the land, which sounds all wonderful and macho and manly, but it wasn't. It was really insulting. The the rabbis used to refer to people who were uneducated, who hadn't been taught by a rabbi um, how to interpret the word of God as people of the land, as men of the land. See, what would happen in those days is you wouldn't go to a university. You would literally go and sit at the feet of a rabbi. Rabbi would sit down, and there's this ring of his students sitting around him, listening to him and learning from him. Jesus is agramatoi, literally means unlettered. He was untaught. He, was, he wasn't taught by any, any rabbi. Um, Paul, on the other hand, was taught by the most famous rabbi of his day, a guy called Hillel. So whenever he walked into a synagogue, when he was traveling around, he would pitch up and, and they would talk to him and go, who are you, where are you from? And he would say something along the lines of, well, I, I'm, I'm from Tarsus, but, but I, uh, I, learned, I, I learned at the feet of, of Hillel in Jerusalem. And then he would speak and they would listen. It was like, I suppose, the equivalent of going to Oxford or Cambridge. But Jesus wasn't that. <laughs> Jesus was thoroughly uneducated, and yet he taught so well. Taught like nobody else they'd ever heard taught. Where did he get it from? Even the temple guards, who, who would have been Levites and therefore would have been pretty educated, acknowledged before, before the priests that there was, there was something special about Jesus when they tried to arrest him and return, return from trying to arrest him in verse 46. So this man who is in everybody's eyes just a man, a special man, but just a man. Who does Jesus say Jesus is? He says he's God. He doesn't, of course, come outright and say, I am God. Remember I spoke about things that could get you killed? That was kind of the chief thing that could get you killed. Pretty much guaranteed on the spot. I am God. Get stoned straight away. But he does certainly believe that he's God, and I'll show you why in a few minutes. But before we do, do you remember the first line of John's Gospel? Who remembers that? In the beginning was, was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Kind of the whole point of John's gospel is to show us that Jesus is God. So John is pretty certain that Jesus is God. Jesus is pretty certain that he is God. How does he show that? Well, 
here's the thing about the gospel writers and here's the thing about Jesus is that they don't do random. Every bit of the stuff that you read, the words, the actions, everything that's happening is written down for a reason. So why does Jesus, at the very start of chapter 7, say, I'm not, my time has not come, I'm not going to go with you to the festival, to his brothers, and then go? His time hadn't come, his time would only be in six months' time. Why does he go? Because by going to that festival, he's saying something very, very clear about who he is. Remember what the festival of um, the tabernacles was about. He looked back at the rescue. He looked down at the provision of God in the promised land. Jesus is alluding to the reality is that he is the one who rescues his people. He is the one who will rescue, rescue people not from Egypt, but rescue his people from their sin. The one who provides richly for those whom he is called. The provision is not in the land of Israel, but in a place in the new heavens and the new earth that John talks about in Revelation. Jesus is that God. And he teaches that as God in the passage as well. Have a look at verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus says, my teaching doesn't come from me, it comes from God. Yet when you go and look at his teaching throughout John's gospel, all the gospels, here's one thing you'll notice about it. It doesn't say God says, God says, God says. He says, I say, I say, I say. Jesus says that Jesus is God. The Messiah Yes, a good man, the only truly good man. A miracle worker, absolutely. But so much more, he's God himself, the one who rescues, the one who provides, the one who should be worshipped. So that's who God is. What about you and I? Who are we? Well, on one level, that's, a question that only you or God can answer. I can't answer that about you. All depends on who you believe Jesus to be. And we've seen a whole lot of things that he's accused of in this passage. Being a liar. Being a good man, but just a man. Even saw him accused of being a demon. C.S. Lewis in this book here, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, it's worth a read. Mark alluded to it a few weeks back. Um, I'm going to read you the whole quote, though, because it's worth reading. This is what he says about who Jesus is and who we are. I'm I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not see. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open for us. He did not intend to. So is that the end? Not quite. Have a look at verses 37 to 39. might miss it if you're not careful. But it just tells us something about us and who we are. Answers the question, how do I know I believe? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until this time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. Again, not random. One of the practices on the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles was to fill up a golden flagon with water. Normally, on the Sabbath day, they would, they would make an offering of wine on the altar. But at the Festival of Tabernacles, they would pour water on it as well. The reason they would do that goes back to Zechariah 14, where we see a prophecy about Jesus' hour, the day of Jesus' coming. Verse 8 says this, On that day living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean, in summer and in winter. And then it talks about war and conflict and all sorts of things like that. And in verse 16 it says this, Then survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Jesus is looking at us and looking at the spirit that he puts in those who believe in him, believe that he is God, believe that he is the God who rescues, and equating that, that, uh, that prophecy in Zechariah with us. As the water went out of Jerusalem, so, so the enemies of God would come in and worship him and be a part of Israel, remember the salvation that happened to Israel. The salvation that was theirs too. Jesus says, as his spirit goes into us and comes out of us, we will cause people to come to God and cause people to worship him. So here's the question for you. If you want to ask yourself, how do I know I believe? If you believe, 
your life will cause others to believe and worship God. Jesus is God. How do I know if I believe it? Or does my life cause other people to worship God? These are two very difficult things. I'm going to give you a few moments now to do business with God if you feel that you need to do business with God. After that, I'm going to pray and the band will come up and play after that. Oh God, we long for the day, that day when you return, that day when you judge the universe and make everything right. We long for the day, Father, when your enemies will worship you. We long for that day of peace. Father, as we live in the now and the not yet, We pray that through your spirit that you would change us. Father, we pray that as you fill us up with your spirit that what comes out will cause people to see who you are in us. Through what we do and think and say and act, how we treat people, Father, that they would come to know you and worship you through us. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you.